0: How are we doing? Hey, great. It's good to be in God's house again. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new, I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is a fun place to be. I, um, I'm going to start a new series next week called The Theology of Top Gun. Um, just thought I'd run through that one for a while, but uh, yeah, it's, it's all good. Hey, we're uh, in a series about Jonah, and this is one of those books of the Bible That most people think is a children's book, and I think what we've learned is it's anything but that. Uh, It's actually one of the probably deepest, most self-reflecting, convicting books in the Bible. Um, And I think we're going to see that today, because today is the chapter where we get to see Jonah's real heart. And I've been kind of hinting at it, that it's not a pretty heart. Um, And sadly, it's a heart that reminds me in a lot of ways of mine. So Um, We're going to learn quite a bit about that. So, So we've been learning through this series that God loves everyone and we don't, that we're all connected to one another and what we do impacts each other, that God lovingly pursues His children no matter how far you try to run, that God allows us to go to desperation in order to bring us transformation. Last week we Learned about how Jonah preached this totally uninspiring eight word sermon, and people fell on their faces surrendering to God, and it brought revival. And we learned that when we bend, God moves. The greatest miracle in the book of Jonah has nothing to do with this fish. The greatest miracle is that 120 Ninevites, 120,000, fell on their faces and worshiped God. That's the incredible thing. And I've talked over the weeks about just how incredibly pagan the Ninevites were, uh, and how they were one of the societies that was probably the most pagan that we've seen in human history, and yet they fell on their faces and surrendered to God. And you could say, was it real? Well, Jesus said it was. Jesus referenced them just as they responded to the gospel, Jesus says. So Jonah should be full of joy. He preached a sermon and 120,000 people fell on their faces surrendering to God. That is like a pastor's dream. He should be pumped up, excited. He should be just blown away by what God just did. Not only did he just convert 120,000 people, he brought the word to pagan people who were murderers and who'd done horrible things and they repented and they covered themselves in ashes all the way to the king, from the king to everybody. He should be like, boom, this is like it doesn't get any better than this. But there's one problem and one problem only. Jonah absolutely, at his core, hates them. He hates them. They're not like him. The Ninevites know nothing about Jewish law. They know nothing about the temple. They don't know that they're supposed to be sacrificing. They don't know anything about Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. God's message, you see, was only supposed to be for the Jews. These pagans, they don't deserve Him. He's our God. We own Him. They don't deserve the compassion of the God of Israel. They're sinners. They they do disgusting things. They, They deserve God's punishment. And what we're going to see is that Jonah stands behind his religion, and his title, and his view of God, and he judges everybody else. All the whole time, while the real God is trying to teach him how to love people. In fact, the last chapter of Jonah, we're going to see the full disclosure of Jonah's heart and how ugly it is. He is a seriously messed up person. God has told him to do something, and he's not doing it. Like an idiot... He he runs from God, and then he finally does what God wants him to do, but only because he has to. And he goes to Nineveh to preach, like I said, a young child going up the stairs, stomping up to clean their room. You see, Jonah has a bunch of rules. His religion, his rules, his position as a Jew has become more important than his relationship with God. Unfortunately, Jonah is a lot like us. He expects people who have never heard about God to do what God wants them to do. He expects pagans to act like saints, and then he judges them as unworthy when he's the one who is supposed to go tell them about God in the first place. He sits in the comfort of what God has given him, but doesn't really appreciate it. He's not grateful or thankful, but he takes great pride as being one of God's people who deserves it. He hates people who aren't like him. He judges them for breaking the laws of a God they've never met. He has no room for compassion in them because he's so full of love for himself. At times he acts like God needs him rather than the other way around. No doubt Jonah's messed up. And so am I. The more I study Jonah, the more I see myself. In fact... By judging Jonah, I become Jonah. Hmm. Have you ever sat in the security and comfort of your walk with Christ and looked down on somebody else? Have you placed your religion ahead of what God wants you to do? Looking down on others who don't live in a way that honors God. Forgetting that they don't yet know God ignoring that they might actually know God and live lives and honor Him if you would just tell them about Him. But That hasn't happened yet. Because you and I would rather judge them than share the gospel with them. Because deep down, many of us believe they don't deserve it. Somehow judging them is supposed to make us feel better about ourselves. Maybe you've allowed the man-made rules of religion to become more important than your relationship with Jesus, more important than your love and compassion for other people. And in the process, we make ourselves more important than we really are. Remember when I said that we're all Jonahs in week one? For a long time, my, my idol was my title as a doctor and my education and my position and my money. Maybe for you, it's your social status or your business or your health or your position or your race or your nationality or your political affiliation or your body or your looks. There's a million idols out there. We all pick them. Jonah's idol was his religion, his birthright as a Jew, his understanding of scriptures, his standing in the temple, his title as a prophet of God his belief that the god of the jews was only for the jews. Jonah gets to the point where he believes he knows what god wants more than god does. Jonah verse 3 chapter or chapter 3 verse 10. When god saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, god relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Jonah preached oh, Jonah preached Wow, pubescent. All right. Jonah preached and revival broke out. There was a spiritual bomb dropped on Nineveh. God had been working in their circumstances too. He'd been preparing them. We talked about it last week. He, Jonah hit the mother load. He preached and they actually repented. But Jonah has a heart that is so far from God and yet God loves him too much to leave him there. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It displeased Jonah. Literally, it was evil to Jonah. The the original word, it was evil. It was horrible. He's not just upset. He is full of anger. He is burning up. You have to do a word study on this scripture to understand the Hebrew word ra. That's the word that they're using. It's the same one that God used in chapter 1 when he says he wants him to go to Nineveh because they're... Their sickness, their sin, their, he's angry. at. The, he wants them to repent. It's not just a passing thing. It's a deep-seated anger and hate. His prejudice and racism is at the very core of who Jonah is, and God's going to rid him of it. Now, basically, Jonah's not saying, look, I'm disappointed, I'm a little upset. He's saying, look, God, what you did Your mercy poured out on those people, those evil people. God, you poured out your mercy on those people. They don't deserve it. Your mercy on them, God, repulses me. Jonah is equating God's mercy for people literally as bad as the sins of the Ninevites. He's saying, God, look, you've done something evil and you've sinned in your mercy towards them. Jonah is actually calling out God as a sinner. He's saying, look, you shouldn't have saved them. Your mercy on them is wrong. They are evil people. Jonah's not just like upset. His God has disappointed him to the point that he thinks he needs to correct him. The word Jonah uses here is literally to burn to be consumed. Jonathan Swift wrote a verse that kind of expresses Jonah's frame of mind. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There's no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. So we begin to see Jonah's heart. It's been danced around in the story so far. We know Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites, but in this chapter it boils over. What Jonah's saying here is, God, your mercy is evil. And it should be sinful for you to save these people. He's calling God a sinner because of the mercy God's showing towards these people. The people who, according to Jonah, can't be children of God. So why is Jonah so angry? Listen to his prayer. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. and He said, "Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I yet was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love and relenting from disaster. John was like, look, you described yourself in Scripture. You are gracious and you're steadfast and you're merciful and you love people. Stop it. You're abounding in love. What's wrong with you? Jonah is taking God's words about himself and throwing them back in his face. He's literally trying to justify his racism and his hatred. He says, look, God, I knew you'd do something crazy like this. I knew you'd save Nineveh. That's why I ran. This is evil, God. You shouldn't be doing this. You sinned by giving grace to these people. Jonah is spiritually acting like a four-year-old. For those of you with young children, just think about their whiniest days and that tantrum they throw when they don't get what they want. That's where Jonah is. Their complaints don't even make sense. They get bent out of shape over nothing. But Jonah's worse than that. Jonah is a self-righteous, religious, whiny baby. But he's a grown man. He is a Jew, one of God's people. He is a prophet of God. He's well-studied. He's God's mouthpiece. He should know better. This is not some momentary lapse for Jonah. This is the ugliness of his heart being exposed to the light of God. Jonah preached a sermon, 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. He hoped that what he preached would come true. But to his horror, people started to repent, to turn to God. Revival breaks out. Jonah's beside himself. He's undone. He's convinced that his cause is just that his anger and indignation at God is justified because there are rules and God is breaking his rules. Not God's rules, Jonah's rules. Jonah believed that God's grace was only for the nation of Israel. He's a nationalist. He believes that only those born of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob deserve God's grace. So what he's asking is how could these people be saved? without the law, without the prophets, without the customs of Israel. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know about the temple. Their prayers are lame. They don't even have hymns to sing God. How can these people be saved who are not Israel? They don't look like God's people. They don't act like God's people. You see, Jonah wants to exclude God's grace from all races. These people were sinful. They're culturally different. They didn't have the laws. How could God possibly pour out his mercy and love? God should never save these people. You see, Jonah is a religious man, but in his heart, he's so far from God. He has the appearance of godliness. He has the external rules, but denies the power, the internal love and compassion of God. Jonah is a foreshadowing of the Pharisees that are to come a religious man who piles on rule after rule after rule, sits in his own self-righteousness and looks down on all the other nations and people who aren't like him. He hated the Ninevites. You see, Jonah wants a God that's made in his narrow heart image. Jonah's focused on religion. Religion has become his idol, and for that reason it opposes the things of God. You see, we can make almost anything our religion if we want to. We set up our own rules, our own definitions, our own customs, our own expectations, and we make our own idols. We place these things ahead of Jesus Christ and we create our own idols. It could be anything. It could be our money. It could be our talent. It could be our looks, our successes. It could be our government, our patriotism, our church, our traditions, our ideas. It is in these things that we raise up as the most important. It's in those things where we say, here I am justified. Here I am righteous. Here is where I find my value. This is where I make myself significant. We can make almost anything a religion. Religion is where we place something ahead of God. Jonah is faced with a choice between his religious reputation and following God. Think about what happens to Jonah when he goes back to Israel. Think about that for a minute. He's supposed to be a prophet of God. He said in 40 days, Nineveh would be destroyed. When he gets home and Nineveh is not destroyed, and someone says, oh, the people of Nineveh, they're now God's people too. Jonah chooses his own reputation rather than God wants. This isn't going to be good for Jonah. Everybody in Israel wanted almost the same thing Jonah wants. Destroy them, God. We want to see you destroy our enemies. And yet he's got to come back with a message that, well, God saved him. Why? Well, because I preached. You did what? I preached and they responded. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better to die than to live. Jonah, I I told y'all I don't like Jonah, right? Okay. Jonah throughout scripture represents, now here's the weird thing. He's writing this himself. Okay, he wrote the book. Just saying, all right. He's petty, he's hasty, he's self-willed, he's prone to exaggerate things. He reduces himself to despair when he doesn't get his way. When his word is not fulfilled, he wants to die. But he won't take his own life because he knows he can't do that. He'd rather die than see God love the unlovable. But here's the weird thing. It's not unusual for prophets to ask God to kill them. We look at Jonah, we go, look at that. He, he says, God, it's better for me to die than to live. Moses, Exodus thirty two thirty. You have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses goes to the Lord and says, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. Moses, got it. Take me out. Elijah, he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. It is enough, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my fathers. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Spiritual leaders are called by God to lead. Prophets were called by God, often reluctantly, and at some point, I think every one of them wants out. I just think that it's a tough life being a prophet of God. The call that God puts on those he chooses to lead is a covenant. It's not a job. It's a covenant. It's literally like a marriage. God says, I've placed my hand on you. You are to be my spokesperson. You are to be uh, a leader. And then the church comes and they affirm that, at least at our day. And you have a call on your life to do what God's called you to do. It's not a job that you can quit. It's a tell death, do us part thing. And Moses and Elijah and Jonah Cannot stay on earth and not fulfill the mission that God has given them. They're called by God for a life of service. They didn't choose their call. Often I don't think they wanted their call, but it's not their call. God put it on their life. They want out. They have no choice of walking away. Remember, Jonah's already tried to do that. He ended up in a gastric emptying study. He he tried to leave. God wouldn't let him. You see, you're not allowed to just walk away. And I love that God in Scripture gives us examples of these spiritual men and lets us know that they struggled too. Jonah wrote this book about himself. I'm sure at some point he would have preferred to leave a lot of this out. But the struggle of godly men with the call of God is actually a huge part of this story and a huge part of the biblical story. Jonah couldn't run. He couldn't retreat to the hills because we're soon going to learn that God scorched him up there in his anger. I think every prophet in the Bible seriously wrestled with God. And I'm so thankful that God includes that struggle in scriptures. Every time God calls anyone to action, there is a battle within your flesh. Be ready for it. Embrace it and then kill it. Remember, it's okay to argue with God. It's okay to be honest with God about your feelings, about your displeasure, but you got to remember something. Those conversations have to be in invisible ink. Because when you're done dumping, when you're done being honest, you have to confess. It is a sin to argue with God. In His grace and mercy and love for you, He allows it, but those things also prevent you from staying there. In the end... We all, all of us who call Jesus Lord, have to agree that he is right and that we were wrong. Jonah is learning that lesson now. We can be honest with God, I tell you all the time, pray honest prayers, but you can't stay there because the net result is we're always wrong, God's always right. So it's just a matter of time until we realize that the repentance and salvation of the people of Nineveh is so painful to Jonah, he'd rather die than watch it happen. Now, here's the weird thing. He fled his call not out of fear that it would be ineffective. He left because he knew it would be effective. He knew God would convert these people. And he says, look, death is better than my broken reputation. I'd rather die than see my religion broken. I'd rather die than to see my idols taken down. I'd rather die than to experience these things. And the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? I love that question. And I can't believe God didn't just zap him. I would have vaporized him. It's like, look, you're calling me out as a sinner. I'm God. Because of my love and compassion and grace for other people, and you're telling me I'm a sinner because of that. Done. But God tried to continually love him and teach him and redirect him and rearrange the circumstances of his life to get him to a point of repentance and recognizing just how ugly his heart really is. And God loves him too much to not teach him a lesson. He's got to learn it no matter how badly Jonah behaves. God is essentially saying here, Jonah, how's this working for you, this anger thing? Are you doing okay? You see, Jonah's being honest about his feelings, which is good, but we got to be careful because not all our feelings towards God are justified. God loves to ask us questions because they reveal our heart. He puts us on proper ground before God. I love that God. Usually, when I'm praying, I need an answer. It comes in a question. We talked about it a couple of years back about that's the Jewish way of teaching. You always teach with questions. So God says things like, "Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked?" What is this that you've done? Where is your brother Abel? What have you done? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes, David? Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? What do you want me to do for you? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? God always speaks in questions, almost always. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he asked Jonah Is it right for you to be angry? And the answer is always, just, the answer is always, no, Lord, all your ways are right, even if I don't understand them. Practice that. When you start asking questions of God, when you start getting angry at God, when you start venting towards God, you better be ready when it's over to say, Lord, but your ways are right, even if I don't understand them. Yes, Jonah's angry towards God. And yes, it's all right for Jonah to state his anger, but he also has to repent of that anger before God. He cannot stay there. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat it under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He went out of the city, It must have been before the end of the 40 days, but Jonah, for some reason, I think, thought God was going to do something immediate. He seems to have moved out of the city to watch the city, watch what happens. On the east side of the city, that's the opposite side from which he would have entered. It's up on the hills to the east of the city of Nineveh. The hills are still there. It's still next to the river. But it's also in the part that gets the sun all day long. So he has to build this sort of tent for him to sit in up there. He builds a booth. It's constructed of branches, but it doesn't protect you really from the sun. And he's up there to see what would become of the city. He was hoping for a Sodom and Gomorrah moment. He was sitting up on the hill in his anger, in his rage, just going, okay, the Ninevites are going to get it. I'm going to be a witness. I'm going back to Israel. I'm going to tell them what I saw. This is going to be incredible. God zap them. And the whole time he's doing that, revivals rampant in the city. You would think he'd be in town celebrating what God has done, but he's so blinded by his religion, he's so blinded by his hate for other people, that he's missing the miracle of God that's happening all around him. He continues east through the city, sits down, builds a booth for himself, a shady hut, with leaves that cover him. He's hoping they're not going to repent. He told God God was wrong. And now he wants to see them destroyed or he wants to be destroyed. Then he can go home and tell the great story about how the awesome God of the Jews killed the pagans. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might create shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Okay, now this is interesting because you think, well, that's made up. How do you make a plant that does that? Well, it turns out there's the Syriac El Coroah plant that has large leaves and grows to a significant height in only a day or two. And just as God had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, now he prepares a plant to shelter Jonah as Jonah sits waiting, hoping that God's children get destroyed. Note what God is doing. He's still caring for, he's still protecting Jonah, even when Jonah is arguing with him, calling him a sinner, and challenging him. God is making Jonah a shady character. Many times God appoints something in Joseph's life, and every time God appoints something in his life, he's making a point. He appointed a storm. He appointed a fish. He appointed a plant. In the next verse, he's going to appoint a worm and later on a hot wind. He Every time God appoints something to happen, he's making a point to Jonah. And each time, it's a painful lesson for Jonah, and almost every time, he never gets it. But yet at the same time, God is being merciful to Jonah, waiting for him to repent. He provides shade over his head. He doesn't want him to pass out of a heat stroke. He wants to give him another chance. Here's the weird thing. This is the first time in this book that Jonah's happy about anything. He didn't care about the Ninevites. He didn't care about the fish. He didn't care about the sailors. He didn't care about the storm. Y'all throw me in the water. I'm not doing nothing. But now he gets a plant over his head to provide shade for him, the blessings of God only for him, and now, now he's happy about something because God did something for him. Jonah relied on and took for granted the shelter of this plant. He did nothing to make it grow, yet he's excitingly anxious. He loves it. He thinks it's great. Just like he is a Jewish person, which he had nothing to do with, and yet he takes great pride in it. In a sense of nationalism that's irrevocable in his mind, he's part of God's people and none of us not. He didn't create the plant. He didn't create his position under God. But now he thinks he owns it. Jonah relied on the fact that he was a Jew. God's going to take both of these things away, both the shade and his privileged position. God is crushing Jonah's religion. He's taking down his idols, and Jonah is so upset, he's so sure that his religion is right, that he is right, that he charges God, the creator and author of everything right, as being wrong. You know you've gone too far, by the way, in your religion when you get to the point of charging God with breaking rules that you made. And being more concerned about appearances than what God really wants. Jonah's heart is ugly. But he's deadly serious about it. But when the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Here he goes again. It's better for me to die than to live. God appointed a worm in the wind. He has another point to make. Jonah, I blessed you even in your rebellion, and you took it for granted. So God takes the shade, he creates a heat wave, and it's scorching. Burning Jonah like Jonah's anger is burning himself. The ancient Hebrew word for angry is literally to be hot. And God's about to let Jonah feel some heat. See, this is why I don't like Jonah. You save the Ninevites, God, I want to die. You gave me some shade, so okay, I'm good for a while. Oh, you took it away? I want to die again. You see, God, because the whole world revolves around me. I don't know if you realize that, God, but the shade that I get is important. What happens to the Ninevites is totally unimportant. You see, everything's about me, God. It's all about me. But God said, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Here we go again. Another question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die about a plant. Jonah, in response to God's question, actually feels justified in his anger. God took away Jonah's plant. It wasn't God's plant anymore, it's Jonah's. Jonah had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was a gift from God, but the moment God gave it to him, Jonah thought it was his. Jonah does what we all do. God blesses us with something, our salvation, our security. And after a while, we began to think we did it, that we own it and somehow we deserve it. Jonah made three errors that angry people always make. Each of these put him in a worse place than where he was. The first, he quit, going to the hills, done. Second, he separated himself from other people. Third, he became a spectator in life. Angry people go away to pout, to judge others, and to become a spectator or a critic. That's how it works. And then he says, it's right for me to be angry. He's called God out as a sinner. He'd rather die than give up his religion. If God takes away any blessing in his life, he'd rather die. He's right. God's wrong. I would have zapped him. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God's like, Jonah, look, you had nothing to do with the plant, much like you had nothing to do with your status as a Jew, your position as a religious leader, or even your selection as my prophet. Remember, I did those things. Jonah says, I'd rather die than see these people saved. Jonah says, my rules are more important than what God wants. My religion is more important than what God wants to do. But look at God's heart. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? 120,000 people. Only men are counted. And this right from their left, do you know who he's talking about? Because I'll tell you, the population of Nineveh was closer to 600,000. God loves people and we don't. Jonah's freaking out. He's freaking out about the death of a plant while he's overseeing a hill that he hopes God will annihilate a whole bunch of people. God says, Jonah, these aren't just people. These are people made in my image. These are people who don't yet know me. People who, who, they're just like you. Your heart is so ugly, and it seems, my prophet, you don't know my heart at all. You see, those who can't discern between their right and left hands was an idiom, a Jewish idiom. And it meant two things. Most commonly, it was used to describe very young children. Children who don't know which hand is strongest yet. They're trying to figure out which one. Metaphorically, they're too young to really understand good and evil. And thus, at present, they're incapable of moral discernment. God is reminding Jonah, look, in that city that you want me to annihilate, there's at least 120,000 children. Just like your children. And they're on playgrounds right now. And you want me to annihilate them. You're sitting up on the hill wanting them to die. Don't forget there's children there. Second, it's an idiom that meant people who were very spiritually immature, physically grown, but new in their faith, or having no faith at all. They know they're right from their left physically, but they don't know it spiritually. They're like lost little children trying to find their way. Jonah's heart is filled with hatred and racism and nationalism and religiosity. God's heart's full of compassion and mercy and forgiveness. We serve a compassionate God. A God who goes after lost people. You see, there's only one seeker movement. It's God moving towards the lost. Something deeper is going on here. Everything in the Bible is about symbolism. You may remember that I've told you that Israel, the nation of Israel, is always figuratively in the Bible a plant, a vine. It represents the nation of Israel. And it's tended to by God. It grows by God, it develops by God, it's placed by God. The symbolism here is important. Israel's the plant on the hill. It's overlooking the good news being taken to the pagans. And rather than celebrating, they begin withering. In their arrogance as God's people, as the message is taken to pagans, The nation of Israel does not respond. That's why Jesus cried over it when he came into the city. It's a foreshadowing of the Gentile era that we're now living in. God is trying to show Jonah his compassion. He says, look, you pity a plant. Shouldn't I care about a great city? You pity a plant. What about all these people I created? People that I love, and by the way, people that you don't love. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know about me yet. They're confused. They don't know darkness from light, lies from truth. They don't understand. They don't know what you know, Jonah. They didn't have the blessing of growing up in Israel. They didn't know about my laws and the prophets. They're lost. And I have pity on them, all of them, and my heart goes out to them. Verse 11, And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there's more than 120,000? And then he says... And also, by the way, Jonah, so much cattle. Also, by the way, I created the animals there as well. Don't forget that. If you can't care about, a, if all you care about is a plant, if you don't care about people, could you at least care a little bit about the animals? They haven't done anything to you, Jonah. In today's world, he would have said, well, what about the puppies and the kittens and the dogs and the cats? If you don't care about the people, do you at least care about the animals we're about to zap? If you don't care about the children, do you care about what's going to happen to all these animals? Now, interesting, that's how this book ends. We're done. Do you not care about the cattle? Done. Okay. If you don't believe me, pick up the book. It's true. It ends right here. It ends with God asking a question, not just to Jonah, but to all of us. We know Jonah eventually repents. He hadn't yet. The book's done, he hasn't. But we know he repents because we read chapter 2. And remember I told you it's almost out of place? Because in chapter 2, he's praising God for teaching him the lesson that he hasn't yet learned. Jonah eventually learns this lesson. But the question's not for Jonah, it's for us. Jonah is now teaching us sharing his own horrible story at his own expense, hoping that we'll learn the lesson he took so long to learn. The lesson's clear. Not only does God have concern for people, but he's justified in doing so. God's trying to tell us, look, I'm the God of all people. Remember one of our key points from earlier in this passage, God loves everyone and we don't. And salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. The lesson of Jonah is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to a race, a class, a nationality, a group of believers, a denomination. It belongs to God. It's the same message that Peter made clear in Acts chapter 10, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. God shows no partiality. So God's people should show no partiality. Do you know that? Do you really know that? Salvation belongs to God, and God offers it to whoever He wants. Every church that I know, has people sitting up on the hill under the shade that God provides for them, hoping that God will bring judgment on churches, and instead God's working on bringing revival. Today we don't go sit up on a hill hoping places fail, we go to Facebook. It's the same concept. We've seen this in our church. Many have left our church because they can't accept that God brings the same salvation to the homeless the drug addicted, the alcoholic, the mentally ill, those with criminal records, those the world and many other churches have literally overlooked. And in the shade of their salvation, they demand that God deny salvation to other people. At least Jonah was honest enough to say it. It's been the story of the ministry that Tammy and I have had for over 20 years. It's why we're a remnant. The hills of our church are full of people who wanted us to deny salvation to other people. They'll clean it up. They won't say that's what it is. That's their excuse. And the hills are full nonetheless. We've likely all spent our time as the shady character up on the hill critiquing other people, wishing God's judgment on those that we have now deemed unworthy. I've been there and I've done it. But God will not allow you to stay there. God made sure Jonah learned his lesson and he does the same with us. God's church has no place for those who claim to be saved and then try to deny that gift to other people. The door at remnant is an entrance for Christ followers who love everyone. It's an exit for those who don't. We're going to love everybody. So Jonah's Fellow Jonas, as we close out this amazing book, I want to challenge you to examine your heart. Is your religion in the way of your relationship with God? Are you sitting in the shade overlooking a city of people desperate for God in a booth that you've created for yourself? Your rules, your self-righteousness, your position in God's family, your worship style, your preferences on the way church must be, your love for yourself. Are you prideful in your relationship with God that you had nothing to do with? The salvation that you didn't earn and didn't deserve, it was a gift of God's mercy and compassion and God's love, and you could never pay it back. You certainly don't deserve it. All you can do is give him praise and thanks for it. Have you sat around trying to decide for yourself who deserves to be in God's family and who doesn't? setting your rules and expectations above the compassion and love for God for people that don't even know Him yet. You see, our salvation is a gift to us. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't own it. We don't choose who gets it. We're either in the midst of a revival celebrating what God is doing or we're out on the hills celebrating ourselves and scorching in our anger. Last week I preached about revival. And I mentioned that sometimes we don't really want revival because it's inconvenient for us. God may ask us to love people whose lifestyles, culture, race, personality, sexual preferences, whose sins we don't like. He's going to ask us to love the homeless, the rich, every race, the drug addicted, the arrogance addicted, the self-righteous, the unrighteous, every person that walks in this building, God has already told us to love them. We're to embrace those who don't agree with us, hate the sin, but love the sinner. We're to introduce people whose choices dishonor God to the very God who will change them. You can't change without God. God will make us face our prejudices in order to gain His perspective. Wednesday night, we had an incredible time of prayer. I encourage you to join us each Wednesday at 6 o'clock. We bend and God moves. Now, you may have asked, what exactly do we bend? Well, we bend under the weight of God's love. God's love for every person he's ever created. And every person you've ever laid eyes on. You see, we have to bend because God and his purposes never do. God was going to offer his salvation to the Ninevites. He made it clear to Jonah in chapter one. And Jonah ran. Jonah was either going to bend or break. But either way, salvation was coming to Nineveh because God said so. We can't authentically pray for revival in ourselves, in our church, in our community, if we're unwilling to love everyone. See, we're all Jonahs. God loves everyone and we don't. We're all connected to one another. God lovingly pursues his children. He allows desperation to bring us to transformation. Salvation belongs to God. Revival comes from God. And God will make us face our prejudices in order to help us gain his perspective. It's not a children's story. It's our story. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these incredible four chapters. I thank you, God, that you love us. And even when we are rebelling, even when we have hearts that are far from you, even when we're not where you want us to be, you still bless us and you still wait for us and you still have compassion and patience. But God, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not letting us walk around with hatred and racism and anything other than love for people. God, please pour out your love on us. Pour it out so full that we can't help but pour it out to other people. Give us a heart for the people that you created. Help us to be like you when we see other people. Jesus loved every person he ever saw. Forgive us, God, when we stand under his cross, receiving his gift, and push people away. May that never be this church. May it never be us. God, please send the hurting and the sick and the poor. You said when you looked out over the crowd, they were like sheep without a shepherd and you had compassion on them. God, would you send us the sheep that don't have the shepherd so that we can pour your compassion out on them too? We love you. We thank you for all that you're doing here. Give us the courage to do life your way instead of ours. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Music